Hello, this is R.J. Deacon, reading the Supreme Court of the United States Opinion Syllabus in McDonough v. Smith, certiori to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, argued April 17, 2019, decided June 20, 2019. Petitioner Edward McDonough processed ballots as a commissioner of the County Board of Elections in a primary election in Troy, New York. Respondent Ewell Smith was specially appointed to investigate and prosecute a case of forged absentee ballots in that election. McDonough became his primary target. McDonough alleges that Smith fabricated evidence against him and used it to secure a grand jury indictment. Smith then brought the case to trial and presented the allegedly fabricated testimony. That trial ended in a mistrial. Smith again elicited allegedly fabricated evidence in a second trial which ended on December 21, 2012, with McDonough's acquittal on all charges. On December 18, 2015, McDonough sued Smith under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, asserting, as relevant here, a claim for fabrication of evidence. The district court dismissed the claim as untimely, and the Second Circuit affirmed. The court held that the three-year limitations period began to run when, one, McDonough learned that the evidence was false and was used against him during the criminal proceedings, and two, he suffered a loss of liberty as a result of that evidence. Thus, the court concluded, McDonough's claim was ultimate untimely because those events undisputedly had occurred by the time McDonough was arrested and stood trial. The Supreme Court held, the, de the decision below is reversed and remanded, and Justice Sotomayor delivered the opinion of the court. The statute of limitations for McDonough's Section 1983 fabricated evidence claim began to run when the criminal proceedings against him terminated in his favor, that is, when he was acquitted at the end of his second trial. The time at which a Section 1983 claim accrues is a question of federal law, conforming in general to common law tort principles, and is presumptively, but not always, when a plaintiff has a complete and present cause of action. That's Wallace versus Cato. An accrual analysis begins with identifying the specific constitutional right alleged to have been infringed. Manuel versus Jolette. Here, the claimed right is an assumed due process right not to be deprived of liberty as a result of a government official's fabrication of evidence. Accrual questions are often decided by refer referring to the common law principles governing analogous torts. That's Wallace again. The most analogous common law tort here is malicious prosecution, which accrues only once the underlying criminal proceedings have resolved in the plaintiff's favor. Following that analogy where it leads, McDonough could not bring his fabricated evidence claim under Section 1983 prior to favorable termination of his prosecution. Malicious, malicious prosecution's favorable termination requirement is rooted in pragmatic concerns with avoiding parallel criminal and civil litigation over the same subject matter and the related possibility of conflicting civil and criminal judgments, and likewise avoids allowing collateral attacks on criminal judgments through civil litigations. See Heck v. Humphrey. Because a civil claim, such as McDonough's, asserting that fabricated evidence was used to pursue criminal, a criminal judgment, implicates the same concerns it makes sense to adopt the same rule. The principles and reasoning of Heck 
which emphasized those concerns with parallel litigation and conflicting judgments, confirm the strength of this analogy. This case differs because the plaintiff in Heck had been convicted and McDonough was acquitted. But McDonough's claims nevertheless challenged the validity of the criminal proceedings against him in essentially the same manner as the plaintiff in Heck challenged the validity of his conviction. The soundness of this conclusion is reinforced by the consequences that would follow from imposing a tick, ticking limitations clock on criminal defendants as soon as they become aware that fabricated evidence has been used against them. That rule would create practical problems in jurisdictions where prosecutions regularly last nearly as long or even longer than the limitations period. Criminal defendants could face the untenable choice of letting their claims expire or filing a civil suit against the very person who is in the midst of prosecuting them. The parallel civil litigation that would result if plaintiffs choose the second option would run counter to core principles of federalism, comedy, consistency, and judicial economy. Smith's suggested workaround, stays and ad hoc abstentions, is poorly suited to the type of claim at issue here. Smith's counterarguments do not sway the result. First, relying on Wallace, Smith argues that Heck is irrelevant to McDonough's claim. The court in Wallace rejected the plaintiff's reliance on Heck, but Wallace involved a false arrest claim, analogous to common law false imprisonment, and does not displace the principles in Heck that resolve this case. Second, Smith argues that McDonough theoretically could have been prosecuted without the fabricated evidence and was not convicted even with it, and thus, because a violation could exist no matter its effects on the outcome, the date of that outcome is irrelevant. Although the argument for adopting a favorable termination requirement would be weaker in the context of a fabricated evidence claim that does not allege that the violation's consequence was a liberty deprivation occasioned by the criminal proceedings themselves, that is not the nature of McDonough's claim. His claim remains most analogous to a claim of common law malicious prosecution. Nor does it change the result that McDonough suffered harm prior to his acquittal, because the court has never suggested that the date on which a constitutional injury first occurs is the only date from which a limitations period may run. Third, Smith argues that the advantages of his rule outweigh its disadvantages as a matter of policy, but in his arguments, but his arguments are unconvincing. It is not clear that the Second Circuit's approach would provide more predictable guidance. And while perverse incentives for prosecutors and risk of foreclosing meritorious claims could be valid considerations in other contexts, they do not overcome other considerations here. The decision below is reversed and remanded. Justice Sotomayor delivered the opinion of the court, in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Alito, and Kavanaugh joined. Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion, in which Justices Kagan and Gorsuch joined. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get a hold of us, we can be reached at rhodesscholar80 at gmail.com. That's R-O-A-D-S and 8-0. Or on Twitter at Court Syllabus.